Hey, um, one other thing I want to give you an update on. Um, as, as some of you may know, several weeks back, one of our youth, Cooper, got hit by a car on his bicycle um, and had lost pretty much all use of his right side of his body. Last Sunday, I said, hey, he's got very minimal movement in his appendages, but here's what we're praying for. We're praying that he can go from one hour of physical therapy a day to three hours of physical therapy a day so that he can be moved into a, a, a rehabilitation facility rather than being sent home and then brought to the hospital on a regular basis for physical therapy. And God has answered that prayer. So Cooper very quickly over the course of this week was able to move from about one to three plus hours of physical therapy. We even got a video of him able to kind of walk with the help of a kind of a pulley system, but being able to take his first steps on his own, we're really grateful for. He has in fact now been moved to a physical rehabilitation center, and that will really help his recovery quickly. So thank you for your continued prayer, and I would encourage you to continue to pray for Cooper, for his family, and that God would use. I mean, we have a God who can take things that seem meaningless and seem like just senseless tragedy and use it to advance his kingdom purposes. He has a long track record. If you don't believe me, just read this, and you'll see the track record that he has of taking seemingly random, meaningless things and, and pouring new meaning and bringing beauty out of the ashes. Um, so yeah, that, that's an update I am just really grateful for. And I, I, I just want to pause because I know that there are a number of our, our family missing today. Many of you I know are watching at home. Uh, maybe you're feeling a little bit under the weather. I've, I've talked to, I think at this point, about 20 of you that have said, hey, we are going to be watching from home because we can't be there today. We're just not feeling well. So let me just pray one more time. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who works in the midst of the messiness of life. And we, can, we recognize that we're not promised easy, carefree lives. We recognize that following you does not insulate us from the messiness of the world. Right now, I do want to lift up Cooper. And I want to lift up his father, Scott, and his mom, Aaron. We want to lift up his whole family and, and all of those who are coming alongside of him to pour into him. We pray that you would do a miracle in Cooper's body. And for those who are, who are fighting colds, flus, COVID, whatever, cancer, we lift up our church family and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present in the room with them. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our conversation today as we continue to unpack what it looks like to, be, to live as fully devoted worshipers of you. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. So one of, the, one of the things that I get to uniquely do as a pastor that I really truly love is premarital counseling. And premarital is what you do as a couple prior to getting married. And in fact, both Jeff and I feel like it's such an important thing to do that we have pretty much got a policy that we won't marry a couple unless they have gone through premarital. Not necessarily having gone through it with us, but that they have at least done that. Because premarital doesn't open your eyes to all, uh, premarital doesn't uh, help you avoid conflict in marriage. Far from it. But any of you who are married know to be married means you're going to have conflict. What premarital does is open your eyes to both the blessings of what it means to be married as well as the difficulties that that brings and helps you begin to recognize what you're saying yes to so that you don't just go in blindly and be like, I had no idea. 
And so we will have a number of conversations over the course of it. And invariably, one of the conversations that we have as we go through premarital is about how we give and receive love. And we call that the love languages. And I'm using that language. Many of you have heard of the five love languages. I'm taking that from Gary Chapman's book by the same title, The Five Love Languages. And the love languages are the ways that we both express and we receive love. They are words of affirmation, quality time spent together, physical touch, acts of service, and gifts. Those are the five love languages. And I will confess that the first time I read over them, I go, wait, there's some missing. Like in my family growing up, we we showed love through sarcasm. Where's sarcasm in there, right? And others of you are like, wait a minute, bacon should totally be on that list, like at least food of some sort. So, so I, but, but these are the primary ways that we show love and we receive love. And this gets me thinking, well, what is God's love language? Have you ever stopped to ask that question? How does, and, and I don't, when I ask what God's love language is, I am not specifically today leaning into the question of what, how does God show us love because I think that that's probably pretty obvious when you just look at the back of the church and you see that cross hanging up there because that is the single most visible example of how God shows his love to us. We, we read about it in 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might be, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God and somehow did enough to earn our standing with him, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's what love is. And that's why rather than having another television up there, we put a cross up there front and center because that for us, is the foundation upon which all of our conversations are had. How do we know how God shows his love amongst us? Because 2,000 years ago, the creator and sustainer of the world sent the word of God, the word through which he spoke the world into existence and continues to hold it together today. That word took on flesh, entered into our reality, began to model for us the heart of our God, so that we could recognize him over and above all of the rules that we had tried to turn him into. He was more than just an instruction manual. He's a living, breathing, loving creator, and he wants relationship with us. And so the word of God took on flesh, entered our reality, and 2,000 years ago, he willingly walked to the cross allowed his arms to be stretched out and nailed to the wood, and he slowly bled out so that we could live and be restored back into relationship with God. That is how he showed his love amongst us. And we talk about that all the time, how he has loved us, how he continues to love us, the myriad ways he shows us that we are loved. So that's not the question that I am asking today. The question that I am asking today is what is God's love language? How does he receive love? How do we, as his sons and daughters, minister to him and show him love? Because it's different for each person. 
The way that I receive love is slightly different from how my wife receives love, and we need to know that about one another so that I can love her the way she wants to be loved, and she can love me the way that I want to be loved or am able to receive. Some people, words of affirmation are everything. Just tell me how you feel about me. For other people, words are cheap. Show me how you love me. So what is God's love language? I mean, if, it's, if God's love language is acts of service, then all of us ought to really quickly run out and volunteer, right? And if God's love language is gifts, then maybe that's why he asks us to give a portion of our income on a regular basis. Or maybe God's love language is quality time, which is why we are encouraged, and I constantly am encouraging us, we need to spend time alone with him. That quiet time in the morning is so important because that's quality time with him. But that's, if you, if you begin to read through Scripture pretty quickly, you'll recognize that while those are all ways that we can show our love to God and respond to Him, that is not the primary way that we are called to love Him. In fact, and this kind of surprised me when I began to dig into Scripture, I found that the number one way that God articulates that we can show our love to Him is through obedience. In fact, you don't have to take my word for it. Let's just throw up four of about 20 different examples that I found in Scripture. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commands. Jesus, just a few verses later in the same chapter, says this. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will reveal myself to him. Do you want to see Christ in your life? Do you want to experience Jesus in your life? It comes through an act of obedience, of submitting your life to him and actually following through on what he has said in your life. In chapter 15, Jesus once again reiterates the same point. He said, if you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and I remain in his love. And then skipping out of the Gospel of John all the way to 1 John chapter 5, he writes this, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. This is just four of many examples that I, find, I have found in Scripture. Reminder after reminder after reminder that God's primary love language, the primary way that we, His sons and His daughters express love in a way that he can receive is to obey his commands. But what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we go about doing that? Because I will tell you that we can do lots and lots of good things in his name. You can do good things for God, but if he has not asked you to do them, or if he has asked you to do something different and you choose to do this instead, that will not be received as obedience and therefore it will not be experienced as love. If, if anything, it's going to be received as disobedience and therefore will be the opposite of love. It'll feel like a slap to his face. And I can't think of any more pertinent picture of this than in 1 Samuel chapter 15. So I want to invite you to turn there with me to 1 Samuel, which is towards the beginning of your Bible. If you find yourself in 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles or even in Proverbs and Psalms, hook a left because you've gone too far. And if you're in like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you need to go right. 
what we are going to jump into a story not about King David, but about King David's predecessor, a guy named Saul. And Saul was, Saul was a, a, a concession that God made to the people of Israel because up to King Saul being made the king of Israel, the, God had been the king of Israel. He had said, you are my people. I will be your God. I'm going to give you some commands to help you figure out how to live both in relationship with me, the first four commandments, and in relationship with one another, the last six commandments. And as you live these out, you will be for me a kingdom of priests representing my heart to the rest of the world. When people look at you, they will not only see what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, but they will see the values of your king reflected in your actions. So live this way because you're part of my family. You are ambassadors of the kingdom of God. But the people are like, yeah, you know what? We don't really want you to be our king. Because we're looking around and all the other kingdoms have human kings that they can actually see with their eyes. We want one of those. Why, why won't you get, all our friends have kings. We want a king too. And so King Saul was a concession to the people. Their demand was, we don't want you to be our king, we want a human king. And God gave them what they wanted. And as I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, when God does that, that's not his grace. His grace is when he says no to us and gives us what he wants for us. No, when God gives us over to what we want, that's his judgment. And in this moment, he, in giving them Saul, he was saying, listen, this is not going to be for the best for you. But you're demanding it? Okay. And he gave him Saul, who was head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He was exactly the kind of person that people would expect a king to look like. He was the tallest Israelite around. The most physically imposing Israelite you could find. He's our guy. And the Israelites, as they were really getting established as a nation, were living in a land. This was the promised land that God had promised to give them. However, they weren't fully secure in that place at this point because there were a lot of other nations that already considered that land to be theirs. And so they did everything they could to try to thwart the Israelites from being able to put down roots and get established there. And one of those nations that really was active in trying to thwart the Israelites both from entering into the promised land and then getting established there were the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were a wicked, wicked nation. They were incredibly pagan, practiced child sacrifices. They were just not the kind of nation you would want to commingle with and, and, and call close friends. And so at one point, God looks at Saul and says, okay, Saul, I got a job for you. I want you to ground up the Israelite armies and you are going to go to battle against the Amalekites. But this is going to be different from other battles I've asked you to do because in, in this instance... Everything, I don't want anybody to take plunder, everything of the Amalekites, the people, the cattle, all of their stuff, their golden idols, and all of that is cherem. The word in Hebrew is cherem, which means devoted to destruction. And it's just a fun word to say, so we're going to practice a little Hebrew today. Ready? Everybody say cherem. You have to really like kind of try to hawk it a little bit. Cherem, right? Cherem means devoted to destruction. And what he's saying is everything. Everything of the Amalekites has the potential to infect you. I don't want you to 
intermingle and intermarry with the people. I don't want you to even bring their cattle into your, your homes. I don't want you to grab the golden idols and take them home and, and melt them down and turn them into jewelry. Everything is devoted to destruction, and by destroying it, that is the way that you will worship and honor me. Well, let's pick up the story now in verse 7 of chapter 15. So Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havla to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agog, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all the people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agog and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the fatted calves and lambs, everything that was good they kept. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So in one hand, Saul has done what he was told to do. Go and wipe out the Amalekites. But in another instance, he didn't fully do it. He, he only mostly obeyed, right? Because he kind of a little bit disobeyed by keeping some of the best. The best of the best they kept. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and God said, I regret that I have made Saul king. Boy, wouldn't you, wouldn't that feel awful when the God of the universe says, man, I'm bummed that I allowed this person into this role. I regret that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry. And he cried out to the Lord all night, like, dang it, why is he doing this? I mean, Saul. So he was frustrated himself. Samuel, by the way, was the high priest of Israel. He was like the, the primary prophet that God would speak through. A prophet is not somebody who always speaks the future, although that's how we tend to think of prophecy. A prophet is simply someone who speaks the words of God. So God would often speak through Samuel to give direction to the people. So early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, hey, Saul's gone to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. Hey, I've carried out the Lord's instructions. He's sure that Samuel is showing up to like pat him on the back. Hey, it's so good to see you. We did it. We won. And I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Verse 14. But Samuel said, well, what, then what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What's this lowing of cattle I hear? You carried out the Lord's instructions, so then why am I hearing livestock? Saul answered, well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites, and they spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord our God. But we totally destroyed the rest. Isn't it amazing how we as human beings can justify disobedience? Hey, we, we just kept the best of the best because we're planning on sacrificing it to God. We're planning on killing it all. We just didn't do it during the battle. We're going to do it when we get to Gilgal. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? 
The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Why did you disobey? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back their king. And the soldiers took the cattle. Notice now he's no longer claiming ownership of this decision, right? Even though he's the one who determines what the soldiers do, it's the soldiers who did it. Blame them. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back their king, but the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle as plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, and this, this is the most telling verse that we are going to lean into here this morning. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed his word is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion, disobedience, is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. And arrogance is like the evil of idolatry, the arrogant belief that we are somehow more important, or another person's opinion is more important than God. Remember, when we worship anything other than God, that is not worship, that is idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as King Saul. Okay, you did what he said in wiping out the Amalekites. You obeyed in that instance, but you disobeyed here. Yes, you kept the best of the best. And maybe, just maybe, you were planning on sacrificing those things at Gilgal, although that's questionable. That sounds more like, a, oops, I got caught. I need to kind of go ahead and, you know, cover my tracks here. But let's just say he was going to do that. Saul, obedience is a more fragrant offering to our God than disobedience, even if it's with a good intent. You want to make sacrifices to him? He would rather you have obeyed in the beginning. That would have been a more fragrant offering. These sacrifices, when done in disobedience, are a stench in his nostrils. And in the same way, I think of the ways in which we may try to honor God and show love to him in ways that we think are honoring to him, but in fact to him could be like a slap in the face. For instance, imagine for a moment if God is telling you, you need to rest. You have been going a million miles a minute. You have said yes to too many things. It is time for you to rest but then you see an opportunity to volunteer and it's a very good opportunity. It's a very needy situation. And so you sign up yet again to volunteer and you think to yourself, I am serving God. And I think that God would say to us, resting. Resting blesses me more than you serving me in a hundred different ways. Serve. After you have obeyed. Say yes 
only after you have submitted and said yes to rest. Or perhaps he's saying, hey, you need to take a Sabbath. You have, been, you have been burning the candle at both ends. You've been saying yes to everything. Work has been dominating your schedule. You need Sabbath rest. Just come and be with me. But you're like, but, but work right now is crazy. And they're paying overtime. If I, if I just put in a couple more days of work overtime, time and a half, baby, I mean, think of how much more money I would have to be able to give in ministry. Just think of how much more I'd be able to tithe if I just worked those days, if I just worked on a Sunday. I can watch the message later. To obey is better than sacrifice. And if he's asking you to take a Sabbath rest, then taking a Sabbath rest actually honors and blesses him more than tithing 10%, 20%, even 90% of your income. Or what if, what if you decide, you know how I'm going to worship God? You know how I'm going to honor and love him? I'm going to read this Bible from back cover to cover. I'm going to read the whole thing, not in a year, but in like two months. I'm just going to power through this thing. But if you don't actually do what it says, if you don't actually submit to the heart of the one that it points to, if you don't actually put this word into effect in your life, then what's the point of having read it in the first place? Obedience is better than sacrifice. We want to love God Obedience is the way that we love him. And I want to be really clear here because this, is, this could easily be misconstrued as me suggesting this is how you prove to God that you are worthy of his love. And if that's what you're hearing from me, you're mishearing me because I am not saying that. I am not having a conversation with you right now about salvation. We cannot do anything, anything, to earn the right to be saved by God. The cross is a tangible reminder that while we were still in open rebellion to God, Christ died for us. It is by grace that we are saved, not by works so that not a single one of us can pat ourselves on the back and say, hey, I'm a good person and I earned the right to be a son or daughter of God. We are not saved by our efforts So this is not a conversation about salvation. You are saved because God loved you while you were still living in open rebellion to him, period. All of us live out of the foundation of grace, not out of the foundation of, well, I did this and I did that and I'm the, I was born here and this was my parents, so this is why I deserve to be accepted by him. We are all on an equal footing and that footing is grace. Salvation is how God shows his love to us. Obedience is how we respond in love to God. I'm going to say that again because this is really important. Salvation is how God demonstrates his love to us. Obedience is how we, in response, de demonstrate our love for God. But our obedience 
is not a prerequisite to his love. Our obedience is a response to his love. He loves us already. So we obey because we are loved. In other words, what I'm saying is you are a son or a daughter of God. Because Jesus died for your sins and you accepted his sacrifice for you. I'm assuming that you have. I I recognize I may be speaking to some of you in here who have yet to do this. Just know that I am making the assumption that I'm speaking to those who recognize you can't earn your standing with God. God recognized that and Jesus died for your sins anyway and he gave you this gift of grace. And as you take hold of it, your standing with God fundamentally changes. You go from being separated from him to being restored back into relationship with him. You go from being a slave to sin and guilt and shame, shackled and weighed down by the weight of your poor choices, to having all of those things stripped away. They no longer define you. Yes, they're part of your history. Yes, you probably still bear the scars of them. I have a friend that I I, I used to lead a life group with who his whole early life, drugs consumed him to the point where, and yes, God got a hold of his heart. God radically transformed him. But because of the amount of drugs he had consumed in his younger years, he was, his body was so good at processing through foreign substances in his body that he could no longer get things like Novocaine and painkiller. So if he went in for a root canal, he felt every bit of it. That was a consequence of choices he had made, but that did not define him. The grace of God defined him. So yes, we still carry around the marks on our bodies, the marks on our hearts, the marks on our minds of the mistakes that we have made, but we are not defined by them. When God looks at us, he doesn't see screw-ups. He sees his sons and his daughters whom he loves. Our obedience, our response to that is simply, since you call me your son or your daughter, I want to live like it. Obedience becomes the way that we demonstrate our love for God. Truth be told, actions, our actions speak far more loudly than our words. Words are cheap. You don't believe me? Just turn on the news and, and watch anybody who's trying to sell you something. Turn, go, you don't believe me? Go to a, a car lot and let a car salesman try to sell. And I'm not talking about Tom Phipps. Tom Phipps is a very upstanding uh, car salesman. But go to, uh, go to any salesman and let them try to talk you into purchasing what they are selling. Talk is cheap. You know the question I would ask? Are you driving the car that you're selling? Are you using the product that you are pushing? And, and by the way, do you pay for that product? Or is it simply given to you? Talk is cheap. We can say a hundred times, I trust God. I'm following God. God is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord and I am going to submit to him. But your actions declare what is really true of you. Your actions Declare who it is you worship by whom you obey. 
Your actions will reveal whom you worship and obey more than your words were. And this makes me think about the difference between David and Saul, these, the two first kings of Israel. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about David. We talked about how when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Israel or into Jerusalem, he was dancing like a madman before it. He was celebrating so much so that his wife was embarrassed. And she reads him the riot act when he gets home. What were you doing? What were you thinking? You're the king of Israel, but you were acting like a fool. Do you realize how embarrassing that is? Do you realize how inappropriate that is? And David looks at her and says, listen, I was worshiping my God. Whether or not you're embarrassed, whether or not it causes other people to think less of me, I was worshiping my God and I will be even more undignified than this. I will allow myself to be humiliated in my own eyes and in the eyes of everybody else so long as God is glorified. David was worshiping an audience of one, and he was an imperfect man, a hugely imperfect man. But one thing he did well is recognize that God is the audience of one for whom I live. Saul, on the other hand, although he with his lips declared that he was serving God and he was obeying God, with his actions he suggested that he was worshiping and serving someone else. I'm going to go back to 1 Samuel 15 for just a moment. You don't have to turn there unless you're already there. After Samuel reads in the riot act and basically says, hey, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul kind of makes this concession. He says, I've sinned. I have sinned. I violated the Lord's commands and your instructions, but now he gives the reason for it. He says, I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Saul said on the surface, I worship God. I obeyed God. But in reality, he obeyed the, the unspoken demands of the people. We want to take plunder. Okay, take some plunder. Just a little bit. Take the best, but just a little bit, okay? We're, we're going to disobey, but we're only going to disobey a little bit. We're going to mostly obey. One of the things we talked about over the last several weeks is how when Jesus gave his life for us, he didn't just restore back to us our identity as sons and daughters of God. He restored back to us the purpose for which we were created. Namely, to be ambassadors of hope, representatives of God, or as Peter puts it, priests. A priest is an intermediary. Somebody who holds the hand of God as they reach into their sphere of influence and reflect the heart of God, doing the will of God there. David was a priest. He was a priestly king. He gripped the hand of God, and to the best of his ability, and he did it imperfectly, he tried to live out the values of his king. And again, he didn't do it perfectly, but he did it to the best of his ability. Saul, on the other hand, was operating more like a politician. Politicians are more concerned with appeasing the demands of the populace so that they will accept them and be happy with them. 
Politicians are concerned about what the people think. Priests are concerned only with doing the will of God, even if it makes them look foolish. Priest or politician, who are you living as right now? In your sphere of influence, in your interactions, whether it be in your neighborhood, in your home, in your workplace, in your school, on social media, with the people you just come alongside, are you operating as a priest, holding on, gripping the hand of God as you reach into the place that God has placed you and reflecting his values? Or are you acting more as a politician who is being shaped more by the culture around you? living more as a citizen of the kingdom of this world rather than a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, I don't need you to tell me. Your actions already show. You don't need to tell us how you're living. Our actions reveal it, for better or for worse. And so this morning, I think that... and. and I will tell you that I am looking at myself when I'm giving this as well. This is not just for you, and I'm sitting up here holier than thou, have it all together. I do not. I want to be a priest so dang bad, but it is so easy, so easy to slip into politician mode. It is so easy to be more concerned with the people that I can see and the people that respond and the people that tell me they're unhappy than it is to be obedient to my God, even if it causes others to write me off or think less of me. It's so easy. So this morning, I think that as we go into a time of response, the most natural way for us to respond is to begin our response time by praying the words that King David penned at the end of Psalm 139. It is a prayer of self-examination. It is a prayer of inviting our, our King, our Creator, the one who made us in His image, inviting Him to look deeply into our hearts and to reveal to us what is going on. And so this is in Psalm 139. The last two verses. David writes, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward, but I'm going to pray this prayer over myself and invite you to pray it with me. Will you bow your heads? Father God, <laughs> I'm so grateful that you use imperfect people to represent or reflect your perfect love. We know we don't do it great. We need your help desperately. But we want to be faithful reflections of your heart. And so we invite you right now, as we go into this time of response, to search our hearts, sift our thoughts, expose our motivations. Show us, show each of us what is going on inside and what has been prompting us to respond to the people that we're responding to in the ways we've been responding. Show us why we keep running to this thing or that thing for consolation. 
Show us what it is we've been carrying around inside of us that keeps leaking out, whether that be joy or sorrow, hope or despair. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to gently, lovingly, but firmly throw open the doors to the closets of our heart and reveal to us what's in there so that we, with your help, actually, we're going to let you take the lead in this. We will join you in it and we will give our blessing to it. Would you begin to cleanse the caverns of our hearts, pull out all the crud, throw it away. Create in us a clean heart so that we can better reflect your heart into our spheres of influence. We don't want to be politicians. We're tired of playing politicians. We want to be priests. Reflecting your heart as we grip hold of your hand. We are so desperately dependent upon you. And as we reach into our spheres of influence to love other imperfect, messy people. Father God, help us to rest in our identity as your children and help us to respond to your unearned, overwhelming love by submitting to you, choosing to follow you daily, hourly, moment by moment. May our obedience be a fragrant offering to you. Even if that obedience looks like resting rather than working. Pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.
I love hearing some of you clapping like in the middle, like getting going. Come on, just let yourself go. Remember, we're not, we're not here to do what everybody else is doing. If you are worshiping God, then you're worshiping an audience of one. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing. Let yourself go. Next week, we're going to have an opportunity to really lean into the ways that our posture, the posture of our body, leads our heart. A lot of times we think our hearts have to lead our posture. Sometimes it's the, it's the opposite of that. So next week, we'll talk about the posture of worship and how important that is. And then I, I'm excited to let you know that in the month of August, um, I'm going to get some time away with my family, and we're going to just we're going to go explore God's beautiful creation. And during that time, we have a bunch of the missionaries that we invest in on a monthly basis who are going to be here to share what God is up to around the world and, and just to kind of share what, the, what God has been placing on their hearts as well. I'm really excited for our missions month in August. A um, couple of things I want to remind you about. Ladies, this Saturday is the women's pool party. If you, have, if you want information, there's the women's table in the back. Gentlemen, again, we changed up the date for the men's retreat, but it is imperative. I, I, would, I hope that you will choose to be with us. It's been a couple of years since we've been able to do one because of, of all the COVID craziness. I'm so grateful we get to go August 7th through the 9th. If you want information about it or you want to sign up, you can go to the back table over here. And by the way, if, if finances are an impediment, they're not an impediment. We would much rather sponsor you to go than have you not go, okay? Don't ever let money get in the way of getting to do life with one another. But now, Lighthouse, would you just, would you just extend your hands like this if you're willing? I just want to pray a blessing over you. You are not what the world tells you you are. You are not failures. You are not the sum total of what you have accomplished. You are not the number of followers you have on social media. You are not what your job description says. That is not what defines you. You are not single or married. You are not any of the other roles. All of those take a back seat. You are a son. You are a daughter of the living God and you are loved more purely and securely than you could ever possibly fathom. More than that, you are an ambassador of hope to a world that is hurting right now. And so as you walk out of this place, you're not leaving church, you are the church and you carry the creator and sustainer of the universe. You carry his Holy Spirit in your heart. So as you go, go be the church that our city so desperately needs. Go rest in the love that is already yours. You didn't have to earn it. And let that love overflow. You're cracked, that's okay. Cracked vessels pour out more of what they contain. So may you pour out the love that God is pouring into you constantly. I'm grateful to call you family. I'm grateful that we have a Father who loves us and a Lord who allows us to join Him in the redemptive work that He's doing. Lighthouse Community Church, go be the church. Have a wonderful week.